Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you for all turning up to this seminar, particularly at the end of a long day of input. I wouldn't blame you if your brains were beginning to melt uh, at this point. So thank you. Um, yeah, I'm Peter S. Williams. I'm uh, from England, but I work part-time with NLR University, particularly at the Christian Sand uh, campus, uh, who I've had a, a long-time association with. Um, and if you want to get a reminder as you're leaving of my website uh, address where you can find lots of information about my books and free papers and my YouTube channel where I curate lots of uh, YouTube playlists on apologetic and theological topics and so on and my podcast, you can all access that through uh, my website. There's even a form where you can email me if you uh, have questions later uh, where you can grab one of my giant business cards off the table, uh, off the top here with some uh, recommended resources on the back and all sorts. So there we go. So let's dive into uh, four reasons why God won't go away. According to uh, the neo-atheist biologist Jerry Coyne from America, he says what most atheists believe is that there is no good reason to believe in God. Uh, famous new atheist writer Christopher Hitchens said, I think we can say with reasonable certainty that there is no God because all the hypotheses, I think a better way of expressing that might be, all the arguments for it have been exploded or abandoned. Well, at best, just to make one point, wouldn't this justify agnosticism, saying, I don't know whether or not there's a God, rather than atheism, if you define that as the claim that there isn't a God. But more than that, in any case, I don't think these claims are true. I think there are good reasons to believe in God that have not been exploded or abandoned. And I'm going to, at a very kind of introductory level, just share four with you uh, this afternoon. Uh, the project of so-called natural theology, or arguing for God, which uh, philosopher Keith Yandel uh, very simply defines as the attempt to provide good reasons for thinking that God exists. That project goes back at least as far as the ancient Greek thinkers. Now, it's true to say that natural philosophy became kind of unfashionable between the early 19th and mid-20th centuries. Here's a famous uh, cover from the American Time magazine from 1966, asking uh, the question in big red letters here, is God dead? This, uh, the unfashionable nature of arguing for God and thinking there were reasons to believe that there is a God, came under an accumulation, a gradual build-up of influences, including, I think, the, the thought of sceptical Scottish philosopher David Hume and the philosopher Immanuel Kant, the thinking of Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley, uh, so-called liberal theology, uh, the theology of Karl Barth, uh, the two world wars that happened in the 20th century, and you may not have heard of this, but the logical positivist movement within philosophy that started in the 1920s. Let's just pick up on that last point, because it's a movement that continues to have influence today through the new atheist movement. According to what they called the, the verification principle, advanced by this logical positivist movement in the, in the 30s in particular. Uh, it spread into England through the philosophy of uh, Oxford philosopher A.J. Eyre. The, the meaning, the meaningfulness of any statement that's not just true by definition. Uh, for example, a square has four sides, right? That's true by definition. But the meaningfulness of any statement that isn't just true by definition uh, 
depends on its ability to be empirically verified, to be checked out through the physical senses, at least in principle. This is the verification principle of the positivist movement, and it's about when is our language about things even meaningful. For example, if I say my mug has coffee in it, and since I'm in Norway, no doubt it will be black coffee. <laughs> to say my mug has coffee in it is a meaningful statement because you can empirically verify it uh, by seeing, touching, smelling, tasting the coffee. But according to the positivists, to say something like God exists is supposedly to utter a meaningless statement. It's nonsense because it's not true by definition, supposedly, and supposedly you can't empirically verify it by you know, seeing, touching, smelling, tasting God's existence. Now, there's lots of problems with this verificationist philosophy, but the main problem among many facing verificationism is that it it contradicts itself the verification principle is neither something that is true by definition nor is it something that you can empirically verify even in principle so if you applied this rule to itself it would tell you that it itself is meaningless. So, as the American Christian philosopher William Lane Craig says, the, the collapse of verificationism during the second half of the 20th century was undoubtedly the most important philosophical event of the century. Its demise brought about a resurgence of metaphysics. Because under this, this kind of reign of when positivism and verificationism was popular, people thought that metaphysical discussions, including things like, is there a god or not? Well, that's just nonsense language. But all sorts of metaphysical talk was ruled to be nonsense. But when verification collapsed, everybody went, oh yeah, philosophy is kind of like interested in big metaphysical questions about life, the universe, and everything. So the, a resurgence of metaphysics, along with other traditional problems of philosophy that had been hitherto suppressed. And accompanying this resurgence of metaphysics in philosophy has come something new and altogether unanticipated, a renaissance, a rebirth, in Christian philosophy. Also, scientific discoveries beginning in the 1950s revealed to us the complex information processing systems and highly intricate molecular machines within cells reviving thereby discussions about design within the realm of biology, discussions that had been squashed by Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution. Also, a series of scientific discoveries culminating in the 1960s established the so-called Big Bang theory in cosmology, overturning the ancient pagan belief that the cosmos just exists eternally, and thereby rejuvenating discussions about why the cosmos exists. Alongside Big Bang cosmology, scientists uncovered a life-permitting cosmic fine-tuning, as it came to be called, that invited discussions about design within cosmology. In other words, news of God's death 
as a subject we can't even sensibly talk about was premature. And here's a famous uh, Time magazine cover from 1969. <laughs> Is God coming back to life? <laughs> well, as Craig says, the last half century has witnessed a remarkable resurgence of interest in natural theology. James Brent says that natural theology today is practiced with a degree of diversity and confidence unprecedented since the late medieval ages. And here's a selection of recent uh, books that I would recommend on this subject. This is a single author book uh, looking at those uh, evidences from uh, science in the 20th century and the philosophical implications of those discoveries for natural uh, theology. And these books, these other four books, are all collections of papers by multiple authors giving multiple different types of argument for God. Now, it seems to me that most arguments for God try to kind of formalise and so rationally motivate that the recognition of relationships between God and creation where each of those relationships that you can kind of make clear and explicit adds to our picture of God. So you gradually build a kind of cumulative argument, a cumulative case that God is responsible for the universe. And theistic uh, arguments come in families of arguments that deal with the same general theme, for example, causality, but in different ways. So actually there's no such thing as the cosmological argument or the design argument. There's a whole family of cosmological arguments or design arguments and so on. And just because uh, one way of expressing that argument in that kind of territory you might think doesn't work, doesn't mean that none of the others work. You have to take them one at a time on a case-by-case -case basis. So, for example, the, the cosmological family of theistic arguments claim to make clear the existence of various relationships of causality between the, the very existence of non-divine realities and God. And uh, famous examples of these come from the, the Kalam argument from uh, Al-Ghazi, the Thomistic type argument from Thomas Aquinas, uh, the Leibnizian type argument from Leibniz. These arguments tend to get uh, named often after the, the people who famously uh, put forward the first kind of versions of them. Um, and again, I, I keep putting up on the, on the screen some uh, books that would be uh, good introductions to this kind of area. But let me give you uh, one way which I really like expressing this kind of argument. Suppose that I asked you to loan me a particular book and you say to me, well I'd love to but I don't have a copy of that book right now, uh, but I'll ask my friend to lend me his copy and then I'll give it to you. Suppose your friend, when you go to ask them to lend you a copy of this book, says exactly the same thing to you. Well, I don't have a copy right now, but I'll go to my friend down the road and ask to borrow his copy, and when he lends it to me, I'll then lend it to you. And suppose that keeps on happening. Well, two things should be clear. First of all, if this process of asking to borrow the book just goes on and on and on forever, ad infinitum in the Latin, then I'll never get the book from you. Secondly, if I get the book from you, then that process that led to me getting it from you can't have gone on ad infinitum, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. In other words, somewhere down the line of requests to borrow the book, someone had the book 
without having to borrow it from someone else. Now, let's make the analogy here clear. Borrowing the book, being given the book, in this analogy, is being caused to exist, being given existence. Okay? So, likewise, argues philosopher Richard Pertell, consider any so-called contingent or dependent reality, such as you might think a, a physical thing or event. Pertell says the same two principles as in that book lending example apply. If the process of everything getting its existence from something else went on to infinity, then the thing in question would never have existence, would never receive existence. And if the thing has existence, then the process behind it existing can't have been one that went on to infinity, right? In other words, there was something that had existence without having to receive it from something else. In other words, there had to have been something that wasn't a contingent or dependent thing. In other words, a, uh, a necessary or independent thing that was just able to give existence to other things without having to receive it itself from anywhere. As philosopher Dallard Willard argued, the dependent character of all physical states, together with the completeness, the non-infinity, of the series of dependencies that underlie the existence of any given physical state, logically implies at least one self-existent and therefore non-physical state of being. And you may be able to extend the argument further by analysing these concepts more. But you begin to see how this is an argument that contradicts a, uh, a materialistic understanding of uh, reality and is pointing to at least a slice of what we mean by God. And I'm going to pause there because I see there's a hand up for a question. It might be a good question, but how do we know if this applies to... Um, outside the universe uh, as yeah that sense. because we don't there's no rules there like there's like, like um, yeah there's no physics or time or whatever space and yeah that makes sense so we, 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 we start the argument uh, from within the universe and if we start if we start with something physical uh, if we start with something that we think is contingent or dependent, uh, and that the the process of well, does it have to get you know, is it the kind of thing that needs to be caused to exist in order to exist? E either it is or it isn't, right? If it is the kind of thing that needs to be caused, then we can ask the same question of the thing from which it got existence. And you can keep asking that question. And it's just a logical analysis to say that if you're always putting off the being able to give existence, because you're always talking about contingent things that by their very definition are the kind of things that need to depend on something else, Right, then you cannot explain the existence of any particular thing. Um, so it's just by the logical definition of dependency or contingency and the meaning of, you know, uh, causation that we get to the idea that, well, we, we can't explain the, the actuality of any dependent thing just by talking about dependent things. That we have to, at some stage, invoke the idea of something that can give without getting. And so that's not a question about you know, physical laws 
or causation or, or kind of like in time or out of time. Um, these, these series of dependencies, um, you, I mean, you could think of them you know, backwards in time, right? But you could think of them like here and now. Why does this here and now exist? Um, perhaps it depends upon something else here and now that's logically prior to it. But if that thing is also contingent, you know, at some stage, you've got to stop the regress. Uh, yeah, and that makes it a bit, yeah, great. Now, the design, or in fancy terms, teleological, from the Greek telos, meaning goal, presumably when Greeks watch football, they go, telos, when their team scores. Um, this teleological family of theistic arguments claim to make clear the existence of relationships between the, not the existence, but the structure of various non-divine realities and God. Let's just think about the cosmic fine-tuning that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Bill Craig uh, explains this quite uh, succinctly. He says that scientists have discovered that the existence of intelligent life, and actually you could say the existence of even like chemistry <laughs> at all, um, sometimes uh, some of these conditions apply to like the existence of atoms and so on. Uh, the existence of anything at all interested and vaguely complex depends upon a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions given in the Big Bang itself. These preconditions fall into an, a, an extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting, life-allowing values. For example, a change in the strength of the atomic weak force by only one part in 10 to the power of 100 would have prevented a life-permitting universe. Now, if you're not used to thinking about numbers in terms of powers of, they're like 10 to the 100, um, let me give you this statistic. It's generally said that the number of fundamental particles in the observable universe is around about 10 to the power of 80. Okay. This is one in a, in a hundred. The cosmological constant that drives the inflation of the universe is fine-tuned to around one part in 10 to 120. The odds of the Big Bang's low entropy condition existing by, just by chance are on the order of 1 out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. And of course, when working out the overall odds of all of these conditions happening to coincide, you don't add them together, you multiply each factor as you go along. So when I tell you that the chances of the life permittingness of the universe we inhabit are beyond astronomically small, I mean that literally. Okay? So Craig observes that to a way of detecting design is to say that in addition to high improbability, there also needs to be a conformity to an independently given pattern. And when these two elements are present, we have what's called technically specified complexity, which is a tip-off to intelligent design. And the best way to grasp this is through concrete examples. And I quite like the example that Craig uses here. He says, uh, think of a playing poker in a poker game. Any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. It's one deal of cards, one hand of cards, out of all of the possible hands of cards you can make from the, the deck, right? So each deal is improbable, but it's just as improbable as all the others. But if you find that every time a certain player in the game is in charge of dealing the cards, they end up getting all four aces. And I like the subtle joke here. You can bet this is not the result of chance, 
but of design. And if after a few rounds where every time Fred deals, he gets quad aces, and you say, okay, that's suspicious, you're, you're cheating, Fred. Fred cannot allay our suspicions by saying, hey, you know, there's nothing suspicious going on here. Every deal of cards is improbable. <laughs> but it's not just the fact that it's improbable. It's the fact that the improbable thing that's happened exhibits this independently given pattern of one of the few patterns of cards that will pretty much guarantee that he keeps winning. Right? Or think of uh, getting uh, cash out of a hole-in-the-wall machine, a cash machine. Uh, you put your card in, you enter four-digit number, it gives you money. You know, did you get the money because you were lucky? Or did you get it because you knew the personal identification number? Now, you could have been lucky, and it's only like four digits on a ten-digit thing, so it's like one chance in, what, ten to the... 10, 10 to the 4,000. Uh, 10, uh, so maybe you were lucky, but it would seem like probably the best explanation is that you got the money by design because you knew the particular unlikely pattern that was the only one that would get you the money from your account. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, uh, but if there are millions of poker games being played, mm. how? Yeah. Can Absolutely. So you need to factor in uh, what's called the the specificational resources, the uh, all of those kind of resources. And this is an, uh, exactly an objection that we'll we'll come onto momentarily in this area. But let me just set out clearly the the argument in relation to the fine-tuning of the universe, and then we'll deal with exactly that objection that our friends brought up. So premise one would be the fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity. Premise two is things exhibiting specified complexity are probably designed. If both of those claims are true, then it follows deductively three, therefore the fine-tuning of the universe was probably designed. Right. Well, the multiverse objection is the main objection that steps in at this point. So, for example, new atheist Richard Dawkins suggests that there are billions of universes having different laws and constants. So I'm saying, but maybe there's a lot of poker games happening. Right. We could only find ourselves in one of these universes, one of the minority of universes whose laws and constants happens to be propitious to, to allow our existence, our evolution, as he puts it. Uh, and that explains away uh, the apparent fine-tuning of the universe. What it's really doing is the many universes objection actually denies the truth of premise one in our argument by assuming the existence of an infinite, or at least a very large, multiverse of differently tuned universes, giving ourselves extra throws of the dice in order to say that although our universe hits this specification of being life-permitting, it's not actually complex, or another way of saying complex in this context is unlikely. It's not all that unlikely that it's hit this pattern, because there's lots of opportunities for there to be a universe that hits that pattern, right? So Dawkins' objection really goes like this. One, if there were enough different universes, then the specified structure of our universe wouldn't be complex or unlikely enough to justify a design inference. Because it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be ha having both of those factors that you need to infer design from. Premise two, there are enough different universes from which you can draw the conclusion, therefore the fine-tuning of our universe doesn't justify a design inference. Now I've got premise two flashing away here, because this is kind of the crucial 
point he needs to claim in order to get to that conclusion he needs to claim that premise two is true that there are enough differently tuned universes well think of it like this if x number of monkeys with lots of typewriters and paper and so on existed then they could, in principle, type the plays of Henrik Ibsen by chance. But anyone faced with this multi-monkeys explanation as an explanation for a copy of the complete works of Ibsen is surely going to ask if there's any independent reason to believe in the existence of X number of monkeys and typewriters working away for long enough to have made this production plausible, not, un not too unlikely. And if not, in the absence of that independent evidence, they will quite rationally favour the one author hypothesis over the multi-monkey hypothesis. But as astrophysicist Adam Frank said in an interview in Big Think in February 2022, there is no empirically grounded scientific reason to believe there is such a thing as a multiverse of parallel realities. So premise two of Dawkins' argument against is just unsupported. He's asserting it but he doesn't have any evidence for it. And also, as the agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis says in his book, The, the Goldilocks Enigma, you know, the story of Goldilocks and the three bears with the porridge that one's too hot and one's too cold and one's just right. And it's like, why is our universe just right for life? That's the, the kind of analogy. Well, Davies points out that multiverse theories in science merely shift the problem of fine-tuning up a level from the universe to the multiverse because there has to be a what turns out to be finely tuned universe generating mechanism <laughs> right there's got to be some mechanism that explains why there are lots of differently tuned universes why not for example lots of universes that are identical with each other but not fine-tuned for life why why are all these different universes different from each other what makes that the case and so on well you end up having to have some kind of mechanism that produces that result and that means that that mechanism has to be finely tuned so you kind of just kick up the problem a level so as Davies says, the multiverse theory cannot provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe, our universe, is fit for life. Now, uh, axiology is about the study of value. So axiological theistic arguments are value-driven theistic arguments. They claim to make clear the existence of relationships between the value of various non-divine realities and God. And the most famous in this area, and the one we'll look at, is uh, our moral arguments. But you might like to think about the fact that when we think about value, we can also talk about beauty, right, as well. That's a discussion close to my heart, but I'm not going to get into it unless someone asks me a question. <laughs> so, uh, if you think about moral values, Again, they are, moral values are either objective or not. They're subjective. They're going to be one or the other. And by objective, I mean they are facts that are independent of and so discovered by humans. Whereas subjective realities are dependent upon and so relative to, invented by humans objective or subjective discovered or not so we could have an argument that goes like this and at the moment you can just kind of focus on the the logical structure of the argument but and then we'll look at the premises 
So premise one would be that objective moral values exist. Premise two would be the claim that the existence of objective moral values entails the existence of a god with a small g there, i.e. a some kind of transcendent, holy good personal reality. And if both of those premises are true, then of course it would follow that therefore a god of the above defined type exists. But why, for example, believe premise one? Well, atheist philosopher Russ Schaefer-Landau uh, argues for the truth of moral objectivism. Here's one of his arguments. He says, some moral views are true and others are false, and my thinking them doesn't make them so. Individuals and whole societies can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality. And the best explanation of this is that there are moral standards that are not of our making. Because if moral standards were just things that we made up, then how come we could ever be mistaken in our moral views? If we want to be able to say, no, that society is wrong to think that cannibalism is fine or that owning slaves is a great idea, <laughs> uh, then we need to say, that there are moral standards that are, don't depend on us, are not made up by us. Otherwise, all we can say is, we have a difference of, of opinion. It's like, I like strawberry ice cream, you might like mint choc ice cream. Okay, interesting reports about our respective psychologies. But we're not actually really disagreeing with each other. The problem with defending the idea that there are objective moral values, at least if you're an atheist, is this, that moral values and duties and so on seem to require concepts like a moral ideal that prescribes, that is commands, not, not merely describes. It's not just something descriptive of how people do behave, it's prescriptive of how we ought to, should behave. Uh, that obligates our behaviour and before which we appropriately feel guilty when we fail to do what we are obligated to, to ought to do. But an idea, or you might say a character, seems to be a concept that requires some kind of mind or personal reality. Likewise, surely a prescription or a command requires a prescriber or commander. Again, a personal reality. The notions of obligation and guilt, likewise, seem to require someone to obligate us and before whom to be guilty rather than just something. How can something obligate me? This glass of water can't really obligate me. <laughs> my, uh, the evolutionary history of my species can't obligate me. So H.P. Owen famously puts this as a, a, a paradox that needs solving. He says, on the one hand, objective moral claims, they transcend every human person, individual and every human society. They go ab above and beyond us. They're, they're independent of us because they are objective. That's what it means, right? On the other hand, it's contradictory to assert that impersonal, non-personal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills, that things can prescribe our behaviour or obligate our behaviour. Now the only solution to this paradox is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality, not of individual or groups of finite people, but of a transcendent personal reality. 
begins to sound like God, right? Now, the main classic kind of objection to the moral argument is something that uh, is taken from Plato's dialogue, uh, Euthyphio, I always mispronounce this, I have a slight lisp, and so I find pronouncing Euthyphro, that was better, Euthyphro, uh, quite hard. Socrates asks in this dialogue, famously, this question. Is what is holy, holy because the gods approve it? Is what is holy, holy because the gods approve it? Or do they approve it because it is holy? And people have taken this question and then applied it to the, the monotheistic uh, situation to propose a dilemma here. Are God's moral commands to us, say, arbitrary or is there some standard of goodness independent of God's commands to which his commands must conform in order to be good? See, we either ground morality, objective morality and duties and so on, in God's commands, or we don't. If we ground them in God's commands, surely that means morality becomes kind of arbitrary. That would mean that things are good or bad only because God happens to command it, and he could presumably have commanded the opposite. So morality becomes just kind of arbitrary. That's not a very satisfying account of moral claims like torturing small children for fun is wrong. You don't kind of add in the back of your mind, but it could have been good if God had commanded it otherwise. Right? That seems bizarre. On the other hand, if we don't ground morality in God's commands, then surely that means morality must be independent of God, says the objection. This is where the mistake has come in. That doesn't follow. The independent of God doesn't follow from what went before. It is, to use the Latin, a non sequitur, a thing that doesn't follow. What follows is this, that if we don't ground morality in God's commands, morality must be independent of God's commands. That's what clearly follows. But you may have noticed that there's more to God than his commanding things. That is, the objection equivocates between independent of God's commands and independent of God. Moral value can be independent of God's commands without being independent of God, for example, by being part of God's character. If morality is God's character, he is the moral ideal, if you like, and then he issues commands, of course, in line with his character. And you might say it's the fact that God issues commands to us that explains our experience of moral duties as things that command our behaviour. But it's not the, fact, the mere fact that it's commanded by God that explains the objectivity of what we're obligated to do. It's the fact that it's commanded by God, whose very character is good, that explains the moral objectivity of the command. Notice, actually, that the quote from H.P. Uh, Owen already deals with this, because he, at the end there, the conclusion he comes to is that we've got to solve this paradox by supposing that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God. Now there is actually a far broader range of theistic arguments than most people realise and I've talked about uh, so far three of perhaps the most famous kinds of theistic argument. Alvin Plantinga, a very famous American Christian philosopher, once presented a paper outlining a couple of dozen or so theistic arguments. 
that paper inspired uh, an academic conference recently and a book of papers from that conference, this book, uh, The Plantinga Project, Two Dozen or So Arguments for God, edited by Jerry L. Walls and Trent Doherty. And this book actually covers 29, 29 different theistic arguments. Let me introduce you to one that is less famous than the three I've talked about so far, one that I've done some work on myself, called The Argument from Desire. This is a family of arguments that seek to move from an analysis of various, what I call, existentially relevant human desires to theism. It's an argument perhaps made most famous in the 20th century by C.S. Lewis, the uh, English uh, Oxford scholar of uh, English literature and uh, amateur part-time uh, Christian apologist. Uh, Lewis presented the argument from desire in a variety of different rhetorical forms, including famously his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, and a sermon called The Weight of Glory, and other contexts. And I, in um, a debate in this book of debates over arguments that Lewis made famous, uh, defended five basic forms of the argument from desire that jointly constitute a kind of cumulative argument here. Lewis himself used the terms, sometimes romantic, sometimes the term joy, as in surprised by joy, to name the experience of feeling drawn to a transcendent and innately desirable something more, something more beyond one's worldly grasp. In his autobiography, he famously described his quest to understand what he called an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. Joy, you might say, is a kind of mystical experience, occasioned but left unsatisfied by its worldly triggers. These triggers tend to be a bit person-dependent, but often have to do with beauty or natural grandeur or what the, you know, the romantic poets and so on would have referred to as the sublime, right, in the romantic tradition. Joy isn't a desire for the worldly objects that trigger it, as those objects don't satisfy the longing that they trigger, that they evoke in us. Thus, as Lewis said, we remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. Lewis said uh, in Mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Lewis contends that naturalism as a worldview inevitably generates a kind of disharmony between our hearts and nature, as described in that worldview. Or of uh, philosopher Geoffrey Gordon concludes, if the universe lacks, say, lacks any objective given purpose, man is a creature imbued with passions remarkably inappropriate to the universe in which he's immersed. He's kind of raising this question, is the universe a fraud? or not? Is it, as the French existentialist philosopher Albert Camus would have said, uh, where a universe in which we have to come to terms with the absurdity of our existence? Camus said um, that the absurd is born of this confrontation between the human need and the unreasonable silence of the world that we have these desires that the, the world as described within a materialistic, naturalistic framework will not answer. So here's one way uh, of putting that argument that, that plays upon this question of is the world kind of absurd, is it a fraud or not? So let me just briefly take you through this. This is a, what I call a, a reductio uh, version of the argument from desire. One, given that humans possess innate 
existential desires and those might be of the kind that Lewis famously talked about but there are of course others that one might mention. Given that humans possess innate existential desires our existence would be absurd as Camus and so on argued to the extent that it's impossible for any human to have those desires satisfied. Two, humans possess innate existential desires that are probably impossible to satisfy unless God or something God-like at least exists. From which it follows, three, that therefore unless God exists, our existence is probably absurd, at least to a substantial extent. Four, maybe you know, this is the crucial turn here, four, however, our existence is probably not absurd, at least not to any substantial extent. From which it follows, five, that therefore God probably exists. Now, as I say, the, the crucial question here perhaps is going to be what you make of the truth or falsity of premise four. Well, I would simply put forward a case for treating premise four as properly basic, as something that uh, you don't really need to argue for, that the burden of proof here is on the person who wants to question the truth of that premise. If the satisfaction of our existential desires requires or is best explained by the existence of God, then the, the properly basic belief that life isn't absurd places the burden of proof on the, on the nihilist. That's what they are actually cashing out if you deny uh, premise four. You're basically embracing nihilism, I think. And while some may profess a willingness to kind of pay that price tag of affirming nihilism, this affirmation is neither easy to make nor to consistently live by. So, in conclusion, that's just four ways of putting four types of argument out of the many reasons for belief in God defended by professional philosophers today. And next time you over here, perhaps someone saying there's, there's no good reason to believe in a God, maybe ask them which arguments have they considered? How many do they know of, even? Thank you.